Dear friends, As we learn from our study passage this week, God's grace in his faithful children can enable the impossible. Peter's first readers of his letter could learn that suffering as a Christian was accompanied by a blessing from the Lord. Suffering as an evildoer brought chastening and no blessings. I find a measure of personal conviction at Peter's words. Be ready always to give an answer. If we allow our carnal disposition to control us to speak or act with anger at someone, we lose our credibility to answer their questions regarding our faith. Our conduct contradicts our profession of faith. The single most powerful testimony to our faith is our conduct, words included, especially our conduct under pressure. I was challenged from my first reading of 1 Corinthians 6:11. And such were some of you. In the two prior verses, Paul named a wide variety of sinful habits, all of which cannot inherit the kingdom of God. I interpret this kingdom as the present kingdom of God where the Lord blesses his children in their walk of faith, and chastens them in their sins. The challenge We readily understand that the gospel encourages and welcomes repentant children of God to the Lord's blessings, his temporal kingdom. But what about a given church communicates that message to someone who has lived one of those lifestyles, but who has experienced the Lord's saving, transforming grace and is now looking for answers and help, to break those sinful habits? We often hear the cliché, Hate the sin, but love the sinner. Like many clichés, while this one may speak a sound principle, how do you put it into practice? How do you live, how does your church develop a culture, that communicates both ideas to a stranger who visits your church. If we preach and talk about how evil this world is and how awful they are, this broken inquiring visitor might well feel far more judged than welcomed. If we follow the example of the first Christians, repentance will be a foundation of our message and of our own lives. Don't merely soothe yourself with the cliché. Study how you can practice Paul's words personally, as well as in your home church's public gatherings. We preach salvation all by the grace of God. How much of that grace do we practice in our words and interactions with each other? With visitors to our church? Colossians 4 6 KJV A key point to Christian growth and maturity, not a one of us can boast a flawless history. We've all failed. How did we recover? Have we recovered? If we live in a fantasy that we never need to repent, that repentance is for them, we are likely practicing the very sins we most need to repent of. Paul didn't constantly talk about his persecuting past, but he did occasionally remind his readers or hearers of it. The Christian who refuses to acknowledge his slash her persona sins cannot bear credible witness, much less welcome, to the inquiring seeking sinner. Are we sufficiently strong in our faith in Jesus to be honest with others about our own sins? To communicate to that broken person who lived those sins, but who now seeks help, grace, and repentance? What do we communicate to him slash her? Well, I've never really needed to repent, but it is a good thing if you need it. Tell them that, and they'll never come back to your church. We are all broken sinners who need a Savior. I found my answers in Jesus. He forgave even me. He can also heal and forgive you. How can I help you? How do we communicate Paul's scriptures? And such were some of you, but... Life in this broken world full of broken people, 
ourselves included, inevitably brings hurt and pain, physical and emotional. Our daily choices, how we choose to live, especially how we choose to interact with other believers, will predict whether we suffer as an evildoer or as a Christian. Choose the Christian way. Lord help us all. Joe Holder God's antidote for unfair evil against us. But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing, than for evil-doing. 1 Peter 3 14-17 KJV 1900 One of the first questions we have at first reading of this lesson is how a persecuted Christian can be happy at the situation, especially considering that first-century persecution of faithful Christians often ended with death by a torturing ordeal. We might puzzle over this idea and miss the lesson. Peter's use of happy was not our idea of personal joy at a good situation in our life. Happy in this lesson was translated from the same Greek word that appears in our English KJV as blessed in Jesus' Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5,3-11 KJV Peter's basic teaching seems to be If you suffer faithfully for your faith in Jesus, you are blessed by God. Our struggle with Happy In this context might reveal our ideas about what we treasure, what makes us Happy For Peter, both Blessed And Happy Rested on the foundation of faithful service to the Lord and His people, even sacrificial service. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Yes, Peter well understood our slash, his human bent. When I think of the inhuman torture to which first century, and subsequent, Christians were subjected because of their faith. Terror is a good word to describe my thoughts. When discussing the tortures of persecution that Christians historically suffered, I've often heard, I couldn't do that, and, honestly, I've had similar thoughts. What we need to grasp is that those persecuted believers couldn't endure persecution either, in their own strength. Those who refused to focus on the threat of persecution and torture, because they firmly kept their hearts eye fixed on Jesus were blessed with grace in abundance from the Lord. Those who allowed the idea of persecution or the reality for that matter to distract them, lost that amazing grace and strength from the Lord. Peter's admonition in these words reminds us not to allow anything in, and of, this world to intimidate us or to shake our faith away from steadfast faithfulness to Jesus. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. The word translated Answer was translated from the Greek root for our English word apology. However, the ancient meaning of the word was not at all our idea of it. Peter taught his first readers to thoroughly study and truly know their faith so that, even in the heat of persecution, they could give a reasoned defense and explanation of their faith. In Christian studies, apologetics conveys this idea. 
Most modern apologetics divides into either presuppositional or evidential apologetics. Generally, Christians who hold strongly to salvation all of grace, will describe themselves as presuppositional. They rightly hold that any affirmation or explanation of the faith of Jesus must presuppose a prior work of divine grace in the person to whom the apology is given. Evidential apologetics usually builds on the idea that our explanation of our faith should be so compelling as to attract unsaved people to believe. My personal apologetics falls between these two philosophical perspectives. In terms of the basic reality of salvation, I affirm the presuppositional idea. No one can regard the news of Jesus and the resurrection as anything but foolishness unless and until God has changed their hearts by His loving grace. However, once the Lord so changes the heart in regeneration, in the new birth, we need to be strong in our efforts to provide those so changed, with gospel, biblical evidence of Jesus and the resurrection. And since we can't know with certainty who is saved or not, we should faithfully teach with compelling evidence and pray for the Lord to apply His grace to His children who hear. Rather than chase the philosophical distinctions behind these two ideas, let's follow Peter's lesson. The setting Peter presumes in our study passage was not a hall of learning or an objective study. It was the arena of persecution by those who despised Christians and their Savior. However, in the setting of that age, the influence of Greek thinking dominated much of the culture. In that culture, the idea of a man being rejected by his people and crucified was Foolishness 1 Corinthians 1.18, 22-24KJV Paul affirms that the gospel is God's power only to Us who are saved It only touched the hearts of those who were previously saved. So, what is Peter's teaching? Peter and the other early followers of Jesus learned that the Lord's grace was sufficiently powerful and effectual to change the worst of people. His grace could immediately transform a persecuting Saul, transforming him into a preacher and apostle of Jesus. If we apply Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1 to his own experience, we might reasonably conclude that, at the time Paul approved and witnessed Stephen's martyrdom, he regarded the gospel which Stephen preached on that day as foolishness. However, after Damascus Road, that same message could resonate in Paul's mind as the faithful testimony of Jesus. How many unbelievers do you and I encounter in our daily routine? We might easily think that, in their presence, we can be as unchristian and despicable as we please. I've witnessed this sad behavior which dishonors Jesus and his words. What if, at some future time, the Lord mercifully and effectually changed that person? He would be confused, bewildered, and eager for answers to his question. What wilt thou have me to do? Acts 9,6 KJV Would that person then recall your hateful words toward him and seek you out for answers? No. However, if you had been gracious beyond reason in your interactions with him, he might well recall that you not only were a Christian, but that you practiced your faith toward him. This memory might well urge him to contact you and seek your words of grace for his questions. When I observe modern Christians far too invested in gaining what they want, politics, or other causes, that they speak with anger and unchristian darkness to people who disagree with them, I fear that they have lost the glorious view of Jesus and the resurrection, as well as their Light on a hill
obligation to always shine forth Jesus and his way, even in the greatest darkness they see. How will the people whom they mistreat remember them when the Lord changes them? Will they seek out that person who claimed to be a Christian but who acted very unchristianly toward them? I think not. Sadly, by this compromised lifestyle, we lose our testimony when we have the best opportunity to manifest it. With meekness and fear. How vast the divide between this response to the adversaries who threatened death against those early Christians to the angry rhetoric of contemporary Christians who respond angrily to people who disagree with them over carnal political ideas or other of this world things that shall soon fade into oblivion. Peter teaches a basic and powerful truth that is often ignored in contemporary philosophical debate. Perhaps the most effective element in godly, biblical apologetics is our lifestyle. We may hold to sound biblical teaching on the saving grace of God. We may be well versed and prepared to teach the evidence of scripture regarding Jesus and the resurrection. This will matter little unless our lifestyle agrees with our profession of faith. A godly, graceful Christ-like lifestyle may well be the strongest apologetics we can follow. Peter frames his teaching, as do all New Testament writers, as admonitions. You and I live with an abiding inclination to be sharp and divisive when subjected to pressure, or when we encounter those who hold to different ideas than we. And we each can review our lives and discover those sad times when we fail to live up to those godly words. Admonitions remind us. Don't compromise your faith. Don't give up because you failed. Learn from those failures and resolve with steadfast faith to be stronger and kinder in future opportunities to manifest your faith under pressure. Having a good conscience, that, whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. When we fail our faith by angry or edgy words and attitudes, we lose a good conscience. But when we stand faithfully, and with meekness and fear, to our Lord before others, we experience the peaceful blessing of a good conscience. Wicked people shall think and speak of us as an evildoer, a foolish person who really believes the Bible and in Jesus. But they know from your godly response that they misrepresent you. Peter touched this truth in chapter 2. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that, whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, Glorify God in the day of visitation. 1 Peter 2.12 KJV I love Peter's reminder. The most despicable person you ever knew can be transformed by Amazing grace Into a humble and faithful believer in Jesus. When that Day of visitation By the Holy Spirit occurs, how will they recall you and their interactions with you? Will they think of you as that light on a hill? shining faithfully despite the darkness? Or will they not think of you at all as a Christian from their past? For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing, than for evil-doing. Our human nature is so quick to complain. But this is so unfair. How fair was this world to Jesus? How did he respond? One of my most painful experiences in my secular career occurred when a man falsely accused me. He investigated a problem carelessly and overlooked key evidence of what happened. Rather than do his job correctly, he blamed me. Honest confession, my first reaction was not good. I was indignant. 
and it didn't end well. On other occasions, I've been blessed to think biblically first. Those situations always ended far better than this one. Peter starts his summary of his teaching on this theme with, It is better. I can assure you, both by scripture and by personal experience. Doing life God's way will always be better than any other alternative. If the will of God be so. Peter does not question if the will of God is so, he reasons on the truth of it. Nor do these words suggest that God willed the persecution and martyrdom of faithful Christians. In our big picture assessment of life, do we always settle our minds in harmony with the will of God? Scripture consistently reveals God's will. Jesus taught that he came to do the Father's will. John 6 39 KJV, Paul similarly taught what God's will is for his children. 1 Thessalonians 4-1-12 KJV Underscore Paul's words in verse 3. For this is the will of God. God never wills anything differently from Paul's words in this lesson. Our biblical obligation is not to sit passively and wait for God to do his will in our lives. A passive soldier shall be destroyed by the adversary. Paul develops his teaching in this lesson, verse 4, with That every one of you should. There is a vast distinction between should and shall. Should identifies an obligation. Shall names a certain outcome. In the verses that follow, Paul covers two major themes of Christian ethics, moral integrity and gracious fellowship with other believers. When we choose moral integrity as defined by scripture, not by our opinions, we understand the right lifestyle that harmonizes with the will of God. When we nurture fellowship and gracious love toward other believers, we manifest God's will. We should do these things if we hope to live according to the will of God. If we choose immoral ideas or conduct, or if we foster discord with other believers, we act contrary to God's will for us. Peter warns us. When we choose to live according to the will of God, we shall likely also suffer for our well-doing. His closing thought teaches us of a reality we'd prefer to ignore. Life inevitably involves suffering. His point? Do you choose to suffer as a Christian? Or as an evildoer? If you believe in God and His revealed in Scripture will, you should choose the path of Christian ethics, never the way of evildoers. We need these words today. Elder Joe Holder